Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that are thankful that you are sovereign and that you are the God who cares for the lives of all of your people and no one passes into your presence without your permission. Father, I pray for your presence here this morning that you will guide us in our study, that the Spirit of, your, uh, that the Spirit of God will be upon us to open our eyes and hearts to truth to give us insight and to glorify your great and mighty name. Lord, it is to you we bow today in this world of a cacophony of voices that are pulling people in every direction and great confusion. Lord, I just pray that the, that the eternality of the scripture and the sovereignty of God will just emerge as a mighty fortress in this land. Bless this day according to divine will in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Judges, I like to read beginning at verse 14. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and asked him his welfare. And the six hundred ar men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there, and took the graven image, and the ephod, and the household gods, and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate, with six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household gods and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us, to be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image, and went among the people. Last week we looked at the five spies from the tribe of Dan who had traveled north in, and they were supposed to be looking for new land for the tribe of Dan to occupy. And we noted last week that the reason for that was that the tribal area of Dan, which was down in this area down in here, the tribal area of Dan was very, very small because they didn't occupy the area that they were supposed to occupy, which was all the way over this whole area in here was supposed to be part of the tribe of Dan also, but it was occupied by the Philistines and they had never defeated the Philistines or even seriously attempted to defeat the Philistines. And so the five spies went to the north and they ended up way up here in the Hula Valley. This little body of water, which today is shrunken to not much more than a pond and a swamp, is what was called Lake Hula. And it was the first lake before you get into the uh, uh, first lake into which the Jordan River flows. And then you have the river flowing out in the Sea of Galilee, then, of course, all the way down into the Dead Sea. And Dr. Walmart put us on to a video which came on this last Wednesday night on PBS, which is mostly on the floor and the fauna, but it talked about the whole thing from the Hula Valley all the way down to the Sea of Galilee and showed the, yeah. 
I, my wife got most of it, and so I looked at it the other night, and quite amazing. I ordered a copy of, of right, right after the program. It came in the mail yesterday, so they didn't waste any time. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, if any of you didn't get a chance to see it, look for it. <laughs> it's well worth seeing. It is about animals mostly, but it's, it shows the gorgeous uh, area, and it shows what the Gila Valley is like today. Uh, there is, a, as I said, a little pond or small lake there, but there's a lot of marshland there, and it's a great stopping place for, what was it, five million, half a million storks or something like coming down from Europe that stop over there, and some immense number of cranes, and I don't know what all, but it's quite amazing. Pelicans, and when, when you go there, you don't see too much of that wildlife. <laughs> Uh, even though when we were down in the, in the Dead Sea area, they told us to keep our eyes open for ibexes, but we never saw any. But in this film, you see a lot of them. Uh, on, on the way up to the north there, the spies stopped at Micah's house and were blessed by Micah's priest and, and went on their way, and they found this beautiful area up in the north. They came back and reported to the tribe of Dan, and so now a portion of the tribe of Dan is migrating northward, and that's the the event we're talking about here in this passage. I believe that the five spies absolutely intentionally led the clan past the house of Micah. There was certainly other routes they could have taken probably. And when they came to the house of Micah, the five spies pointed out the fact that there was a shrine there with an image, a molten graven image of Yahweh there. And I think they undoubtedly emphasized the fact that they believed their spy mission was so successful that they found this wonderful place because they had been blessed by this Levitical priest of, of this shrine there in Micah's house. So the direct implication, what they are saying here when they, uh, well, in this particular passage, at the end of verse 14, they're, they're pointing us out and then they said, now consider, now therefore consider what you should do. The direct implication is, hey, here's this shrine and here's this priest. Let's take them. <laughs> Let's take them. Let's don't leave them here. Uh, they're, they're worth having. And maybe the success of our attack on Laish will totally depend upon whether we have this priest and have these images in our possession. So, Micah, the man who had granted hospitality to these five spies, allowed them to stay overnight, fed them, allowed them to be blessed by his priest. How is he rewarded? <laughs> He's rewarded by the theft of his gods and of his priest. Even though, was it you, Dennis, last week? Somebody pointed out the fact that he was probably blessed to lose all that. <laughs> probably better off without the gods and, and, and the priest. But I'm sure he didn't feel that way at the time anyway. The excuse that the Danites used for this odious action, this ungrateful action, was that it was better for the priest and these gods to bless a whole clan, a whole family in, in, in a tribe of Israel than to just bless one little family. Oh, sure. And, of course, when the priest challenged them and said, what are you guys doing here? I mean, you, you can't... You remember the scenario was that the whole group came up to the house and the five pre, uh, spies went inside where they knew all the idols and so forth were, and they were gathering it all up and taking it out. And the priest says, hey, what are you guys doing? And they told him, why don't you come and be our priest instead of just this family? And, of course, he was flattered. This was a, a step up, you see, a promotion, <laughs> as it were. He was flattered, and so he helped the thieves and willingly went with them. Now, as you look at this, 
you get a real sense that the Danites are blinded by their own superstition here. If they had thought rationally, they would have realized the folly of trusting in gods who can't even prevent themselves from being stolen. Obviously, the Danites are pretty pagan in their thinking here, and they'd lost all understanding of the true character and the true understanding of the God of Israel. Because they had lost this understanding and they had no longer had any spiritual roots, they were so easily misled by Satan. Satan could lead them away into other ways of thought. I don't know if you receive Christianity today, but if you do, you may have read uh, in the most recent issue, there's a major article in, in there about Islam in America. <clears throat> and the person mentions in this long article <clears throat> several people who gave testimonies of converting from Christianity to Islam because they said there was too much bickering in the church and this and that and the other thing. And all I can say is that's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. People who do not in their hearts really know God and therefore they're easily misled to follow another, another gospel, another religion, a false faith. I, I don't believe that anybody who is a born-again Christian and is walking in, in the strength of Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit is going to convert to Islam. People who do not hear, study, learn the Word of God are going to be easily misled. I think people who do not know the Word of God and do not understand the truth, I don't think they know God in the true sense of the Word. Instead, what do they do? They worship a God of their own invention, which is exactly, of course, what happened here. A God of this world, not the transcendent God of the universe, but this limited God who is an idol. And of course, if you, if you study Islam, the God of Islam, Allah, is a very limited God also. He's supposed to be all-powerful and all-merciful, but as you discover his character, he's a very limited God. I think that's why it's absolutely imperative for us all and, and for Christians everywhere to make the Bible the very center focus of personal and corporate faith. You know, I, I believe it's important to bring in auxiliary things, you know, to talk a little bit about philosophy and, and, and maybe administrative principles and, and psychology principles and so forth. But the focus has to be on the Word of God because that's the only way we can come to know God. We don't come to know God through philosophy or business administration principles. Now, maybe in some way they'll help a church function in, in a little uh, better way. But in this pagan society in which we live, the only way we can survive is to know him whom to know is life eternal. What we discover about the Danites is that they broke the Eighth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not steal, in order to more effectively break the Second Commandment, which says, You shall not make for yourselves a graven image. In the New Testament, we, re we read that if you break the law in any point, you've broken the law in all points. And that is because it's so totally intertwined. And we see that even here. Of course, they also had to have the Levite because he was the only one who knew how to make this graven image and all these teraphim work. And that's the way most religions of the world are. You have to have a priest to make them work. Religions have to work. 
that's of course what many religions have so why so many religions have so much difficulty with Christianity because you and I can't make Christianity work because God is the one who does it and he puts it in our hearts by faith to move in his strength how far how far had the children of Dan moved away from the faith of their ancestor Jacob well let's read the next few verses here verse 21 then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. And they cried out to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you have assembled together? And he said, You've taken away my gods, which I made. <laughs> my gods, which I made. And the priest, and have gone away. What do I have besides? So how can you say to me, what's the matter with you? And the sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest fierce men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Well, it's obvious from the description in the passage here, that the sons of Dan had this sense that probably Micah wasn't going to just let them do this without responding in any way. And so he, in, in case he formed a posse and came after them, why, they rearranged their order of movement. Instead of moving with most of the men out on the front and the van sort of in behind with maybe a little rear guard, they brought the bulk of their troops to the rear and just put a smaller group out in front as the front, uh, you know, the vanguard, and the larger bulk of the troops in the back in case the Micah and his buddies tried to stop them. It was a wise precaution because what we gather from this is that Micah's a shrine apparently was used by more than just Micah. That people in the town or the neighborhood were apparently also, I mean, he had a parish there, you might say. And uh, several people were, were using the services of his Levite and worshiping his uh, graven image there and and all of his little teraphim. And so they did get together and they pursued the Danites and they overtook them because the Danites are moving with everything. <coughs> Wives, children, animals. I mean, they're moving very slowly. And so these men, of course, came unencumbered simply with their weapons to chase after the Danites. And when Micah and his neighbors caught up with the Danites, they protested the theft. Hey, what are you guys doing? You've stolen my God, which I made. The Danites basically told him to go home before you get hurt. <laughs> go home before you get hurt. Well, Micah was smart enough to look around and say, well, see, I've got 30 guys with me. There's 600 of them. Those aren't very good odds. <laughs> so uh, I think I will just go home and, and count it, you know, a lesson learned. <laughs> Don't be hospitable to spies as they're traveling across the landscape. So My, why, uh, Micah wisely gave up the pursuit. He returned home. The vicious, self-serving, godless character of the Danites is made very, very manifest in all of these events. They were as vile as any band of marauders that Israel had ever had to face, and yet they were Israel themselves. This helps us to understand, I think, that even people who proclaim themselves to be of God's family 
can be worse than the world or equally as bad as the world. Obviously, Micah didn't have much faith that maybe his gods would recognize him and say, oh, well, we should probably help him recover us <laughs> because he didn't make any attempt there, and especially since his Levite, whom he had given this job and given room and board and pay, uh, rewarded him by, by taking off and uh, not staying with him anymore. He figured there was no help from that person either, and so he gave up and went home. This encounter is described here, I think, to further underscore the very pagan nature of this particular tribe of Israel at this moment in time. But I think it also is included to demonstrate the hopelessness of placing faith in false gods, as Micah had done. Genuine faith in the true and the living God comes to us only as we all have experienced as a gift from God himself. And it is only given to those who are true believers in God. All other faith is baseless. It's human in nature. It's demonic in source. One of the things this article that I referred to a, a little bit ago in um, Christianity Today concerning Islam says is that in our society there is such a weakness of those who call themselves Christians. And that's true in the whole West, particularly in Europe, that Islam sees this as its day. It's day to make converts because Christianity has collapsed virtually in all of Europe. And Christianity is weakened in much of the Western world in the Americas too. And so Islam, which is militant and disciplined, sees this as the time. And their, their basic goal is to conquer the entire world. You know, most of us have thought throughout the 20th century about godless communism as the great enemy. But now I think we, it's emerging what is really at least one of the great enemies of the faith. They, the people of Islam cannot grasp Christianity as we, as we know it to be. They cannot grasp the concept of faith. They cannot grasp a religion that does not base itself entirely on works. You earn your way with Allah. To them, if you just sit back and, and say, well, by faith I have been saved, they, they feel that, that that's a joke, that, that you're kidding yourself because it can't happen that way. But you know, that's the way it is in almost every religion you look at. Every religion you look at, it's works. And even perverted versions of Christianity, it's works. When they come to your door, ding, 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 you know, and it's not Avon, it's the people with the with the awake or the watchtower or the, the, the white shirts and the skinny ties and the bicycles, in either case, it's works. It's works that's earning them. And that, again, uh, Satan has such a, uh, an inroad there because I, I, I'm sure for you, as it has been for me, there are times when I thought, what can I do? What should I do now? What should I do now to make God happy with me? That isn't the principle of Scripture. Oh, by faith, uh, by works, we prove our faith but we don't earn brownie points with God. Well, let's read the last part of the chapter here, verse 27. They took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him and came to Laish, to a people, quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. 
And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. So we're not talking about a short-term thing here. They believed that the presence of God was with them. And with this presence, they, they would march successfully on the city of Laish. They had the image. They had the, the, the Levite. Obviously, God was with them. And so they boldly entered the Hula Valley and went north of the lake to attack the city of Laish. They were so trusting in their enterprise that, as I mentioned before, everybody was with them. The soldiers had brought their wives, their children, their property, their goods, because they were moving. They were moving. They weren't just going to make an attack and hopefully establish a base. They intended to, to stay where they were going. And so they were on the move. If there were 600 warriors, <clears throat> we're probably talking about at least 2,000 people or more uh, involved in this uh, migration. They did not represent the whole tribe of Dan. There were Danites who remained behind. We know this because Samson was a Danite, and uh, he came and his family was still living there in the Sorek Valley later on when the story of uh, Samson uh, occurred. Only a portion moved. The ones that felt most cramped by the small area in which they were living at the time. So, the tribe of Dan, like the tribe of Manasseh, will end up with two territories. They will end up with the territory they were originally given down here in the Sorek Valley, and now they will end up with territory up here north of Lake Hula, specifically at the town of Dan. Well, being encumbered with animals and children and, and all of their household goods, why, they weren't moving very rapidly, which is, a, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons why the uh, Micah and his crew could catch up with them uh, fairly quickly. So I think they were probably moving, at best, maybe uh, 10 miles a day. I suppose you could move a family and, and animals 10 miles a day, maybe, yeah, on a good day. So what we're talking about is a journey which started out down here and went up this way into the Hula Valley. It must have taken them approximately two weeks to make the journey. So they were en route for these this uh, two-week period of uh, time. The people of Laish were apparently not warlike. There's no evidence that they were warlike. And they were caught totally unprepared. They were not prepared to face an attack. They obviously either didn't recognize the spies when they were there or didn't see the spies. We, we don't know what the uh, scenario was. But they were unprepared to resist an attack. And the implication, implications of verse 28 are that the people of Laish had not maintained close connections with the city that founded. Laish was right here, and it tells us in an earlier passage that they were colonists that came from the city of Sidon. Sidon and Tyre, and further to the north, uh, a city by the name of Byblos, were all uh, major city, uh, cities in Phoenicia. And 
they had established this colony inland here, but apparently the people of the colony had not made, maintained contact with the mother city for any length of time. And the scripture tells us they made no alliances. So they were living all by themselves there, making no contact with anybody, sort of reclusive lifestyle there in, in the northern Hula Valley. It's about 35 miles by road from, from Dan, or what was Laish, to Sidon. And in the process, you have to cross the Lebanon range, where the cedars of Lebanon exist. And so we're not talking about any easy thing. So let's say the attack begins and suddenly they realize they're being attacked. So they send a runner, you know, to go over to the coast to get some help. Well, how long is it going to take a runner to cover 35 miles up over a mountain range for the people on the other end to say, oh, well, you need some help, gather together a military force, try to march it back all the way across the 35 miles, provided they even wanted to do that. Who's to say the people of Sidon would send any help? After all, if, if there was no continuing contact, which the passage seems to indicate, they're going to say, hey, you guys take care of yourselves. <laughs> you know, you're not contributing to our economy over here, so why should we send you any help? But, but let's say they did. The reinforcements would have arrived way too late <laughs> to have saved the city because the implication is that the city is relatively small, the population is not very large, they are, they are not militarily oriented, therefore the city would have been destroyed before any relieving army could ever have arrived. The key to their destruction is found in verse 27 where it says, Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. A people quiet and secure. And if you go back to the earlier part of the uh, same chapter, when it was talking about the spies, it says, it refers to them as a people who are quiet and secure in verse 7 again. And so here, here are these people, they're... They're in their beautiful valley up there. It's green everywhere. There's water everywhere. Their crops are growing. Their animals are flourishing. Uh, they're, they're not, as far as they know, being threatened by anybody. Whether they even had a wall around their city, most likely they did. Almost all the cities were walled, but apparently they didn't have any significant military force because they were peaceful and secure. The word for secure means trust. They were trusting they trusted in their fertile environment and in their isolation. Their environment would always provide for them and their isolation would keep them from threats from outside people. No, it didn't. Since they were transplanted Sidonians, this meant they were Phoenicians. And since they were Phoenicians, they would have also been worshippers of Baal and of Dagon. Thus, their security was in a wrong foundation. It had a wrong foundation to it. Their security was in the gods that failed, the gods that could not provide them protection because true security only comes through Yahweh. I'd like to read from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh will also dwell securely. My flesh will dwell securely. Why? 
because I have set the Lord continually before me. My heart is glad. And also, uh, I'd like to go back to the 25th chapter of Leviticus for a moment. Leviticus chapter 25, verse, verse 18 of Leviticus 25. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Israel knew how to live securely and it was by walking in faith with Yahweh. These people at Laish had no such faith and unfortunately neither did Dan. The Danites, not being people of true faith, were still used by God to do what God had commanded the Israelites to do hundreds of years before, and that was to wipe out the Canaanites. While they're doing it here and taking over another portion of the land, but it was a portion of the land they should have occupied way back in the days of Joshua. In this passage, the city of Beth Rehob is mentioned. Beth Rehob was an Aramean city, and it was located either to the north or to the east of Dan. The exact location is uncertain today. But it's apparently Beth Rahab is mentioned because the, uh, author, the writer here of the book of Judges knew that people would know about Beth Rahab but may not have heard of the town of Laish because it was a smaller city, whereas Beth Rahab was apparently a larger city that had existed, antedated uh, Laish. The, the term Beth Rahab, whenever you run across the word Beth, that means house. And uh, in this case, Rahab means uh, a wide place, uh, an expansive place. So uh, house of the expansive place is the concept there in that particular name. Well, after destroying the Phoenician city of Laish, the Danites, I mean, think about this. They defeated the enemy and they wiped out their city and they destroyed the city. That always seems to me to be counterproductive. But apparently, they wanted to rebuild it according to their own <laughs> architectural specifications. Who knows what? But we are told that they will, would rebuild the city here and probably rebuilt it along Hebrew lines to match what they wanted. And they gave the city the name Dan. And that's the name it's been known ever since. Today it's called Tel Dan because it's an area that has been archaeologically is still being archaeologically explored. What is interesting about this is, this helps us to understand a little of the wording of later Hebrew history. Dan would be used to demarcate the northern limits of the land in the frequently used phrase, and you'll find this used several times in Scripture, from Dan to Beersheba, from Dan to Beersheba. That was used to describe the land of Israel. From Dan in the north, to Beersheba in the south. That is the land. That is the land. Now, that's not the land that God had said they should take, but it's the land that they actually occupied, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And if you've ever been there, as Baldridges have recently uh, done, you know that Dan and Beersheba are very different in their in natural environments. Uh, Dan is, as I have described, a very lush area. Whereas Besheva, you're down in the steppe land. It's, it's open land. It's relatively dry, rocky land down by Beersheba. Let me just point out a passage where that particular uh, phrase is used in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 2, we read, 
And the king said to Joab, commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people that I may know the number of them. So you see it was used as part of the description of the parameters of the land. Well, as the Danites reconstructed the, the town, they apparently built a shrine there for their graven image and for the teraphim and, and for this Levite to be able to serve as priests. We've discovered from this passage that the Levite's name is Jonathan. And we're also given a little bit of his background. We're told that he was of the priestly line of Gershom. And the passage here says, son of Manasseh. But if you, if you have a Bible such as I have, in, in verse 30 there, where it says, son of Manasseh, there's a little one, and it says over in the uh, column, over to the left, it says, some ancient versions read Moses, the son of Moses. Well, what we're talking about is an ancestral thing. The, he wasn't the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and Moses wasn't his grandfather. It's just simply saying descended through this particular line here. And most are pretty sure that Moses was intended here originally. And that later copyists thought, no, 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 we can't have this, um, we can't have this heresy attributed in any way to Moses. So let's change it to Manasseh here uh, to get Moses off the hook. Well, whatever the case may be, uh, this man had a legitimate line, a legitimate line of Levitical line through which he was descended. There's a great tragedy here in the latter part of uh, verse 29 and in verse 30, where we read, And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made, all the time the house of God was at Shiloh. This line of false prophets, beginning with this Jonathan guy, in this splinter tribe of Dan, will continue to serve there in Dan until the day of the captivity, which was in 722 B.C., 400 years later. That's how long this heresy lasted in Dan. 400 years. That's a long-term heresy. A long-term false religion. The statement that the graven image lasted all the time that the tabernacle was at Shiloh was not a statement primarily of time because a longer time has already been specified going down to the time of the captivity, which was 270 years after the tabernacle was taken away from Shiloh. So what is being said by that, the emphasis here is that while the 400 years were passing and this false uh, religion was going on at Dan, during the first part of it, there was the true faith at Shiloh. They are believing wrongly while the true faith is actually surviving down at Shiloh. Shiloh's right here. So the real tabernacle is there with the real priesthood and the real worship of God is going on in the very land while the heresy and the false teaching is occurring. So what it is saying 
that God had not left his people, but they had departed from him. The Danites had no excuse for what they were practicing. In Psalm 145, we read these words, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord keeps, him, keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. All flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The Lord is near to those who call upon him, but he is, of course, distant from those who deny his truth. Well, we'll have to uh, look further at uh, this story uh, next week.